Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which, you ought, which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be cured and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from his manger and lead it to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he had said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing at all the wonderful things being done by him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. The last time I was in Israel was the year 2015. Dr. Borders and I led a trip uh, that was comprised of members from this church and uh, mostly religion majors from Huntington College, those who have gone on to uh, enter into ministry in some capacity now. Uh, it was a wonderful trip. We have another trip in the works for May of 2023. We're very excited about that. Good Lord willing, it'll happen. Uh, but our trips are uh, different from a lot of other trips. We don't really experience the Holy Land from the inside of a bus looking out the window. We get out and we walk. A lot. We walk an awful lot uh, because we approach this as a pilgrimage. And that word pilgrimage, we don't take lightly because pilgrimage means to get to the heart of who God is, to the heart of who we are in God, and to the heart of, of understanding others, we have to let go of some things and leave some things and shed some things. And to do that, one must, well, walk and leave some things behind. So we walk a lot, Fitbit braces, bracelets, they do the max out thing and stop working. I think we average something like 30,000 insane steps per day. Um, but that's what one has to do to draw near to God's heart and to the land. And let's be honest, I mean, Dr. Border's stride is kind of longer than most mere mortals. And when he's in Israel, he, he transforms into super guide man, and we all run to keep up with him, and it is absolutely exhilarating to take every step one can take in the Holy Land. So after a week in, in Galilee, touring the various sites, sailing the Sea of Galilee, one makes one's way up to Jerusalem. You never go down to Jerusalem. You go up to Jerusalem. And we did just that. And by Friday morning, the city was, was pretty normal. And by that, I mean a lot of horn honkings, people yelling at one another, cutting one another off, traffic jams, busy. You know, we Westerners didn't think too much of that. But by Saturday morning... This eerie hush had fallen upon the holy city. It was quiet. There weren't as many cars running around or tour buses. Most everyone was traveling by foot. 
we began seeing picnic blankets and baskets pop up and, and children throwing Frisbees and dogs trying to outrun the Frisbee before someone caught it. Shops were closed, restaurants were locked, and for a brief moment, I mean, let's be honest about being Westerners. We thought, we need to read a headline. There's no telling. Has something happened in Israel? Why is it so calm? Why is it so quiet? And we all started pss, 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 trying to figure out what was going on. It was about that time Dr. Borders commandeered the microphone and said, hey, guys, today is Sabbath. Shabbat Shalom. Welcome to the Holy Land. And it was this beautiful moment because in, in my mind, I thought, wait a minute. I thought Sabbath meant going to church for one hour, grabbing a quick bite, and then coming back to work several hours in preparation of the week so that I'm not behind. You ever do that? Or watching TV or playing, playing golf or, or doing whatever it, it, it is. But an entire city shutting down, that's taking Sabbath to a different level because in in Judaism, everything builds towards Sabbath. All six days build towards Sabbath. We build uh, from Sabbath. In Judaism, we build towards Sabbath. Every decision throughout the week, the bread is, uh, is woven and kneaded and, and baked before Sabbath. Lights are left on so one does not have to turn lights on during Sabbath. One showers, one uh, gives to charities all prior to Sabbath to tee it up. So that when Sabbath arrives, a person and a family are just connected with God and each other and with the land and with the community. And I think to be better Christians, we need to be better Jews, and Sabbath is, is one way we can do that. Uh, Walter Brueggemann has, has written an incredible book. It's a short little book. It'd be great for a Sunday school Bible study lesson or something along those lines. It's called Sabbath as Resistance, Saying No to the Culture of Now. It's a wonderful book. And what Brueggemann is, is uh, telling us, reminding us even, is that Sabbath is its own superpower. It's its own resistance movement that practicing Sabbath intentionally as the way it was designed way back from Exodus as this hinge point in the Decalogue between how to love God and how to love people. The middle of the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, is Sabbath. Remember it and keep it holy. And so I've been thinking about Sabbath as a way to resist anxiety and to resist materialism and to resist coercion. That is this allure that we have to feed this pyramid system where Pharaoh sits on top and, and works off the backs of those who are bent over trying to make brick and straw. We get to resist consumerism in that way on Sabbath. It's a fascinating book. And so I asked this week, with all of that in mind, how do you observe Sabbath? On what day do you observe Sabbath? And what is the connection between Sabbath and healing? That's the focus of our text today. So thank you uh, for filling out the Thursday survey once again. Most everyone who completed it said that Sabbath is about spending time with family, reading, uh, exercising, praying, or my favorite, napping. You know, take a nap. A lot of y'all mentioned that. And about three or four of you said, um, all but three or four of you said that you observe Sabbath on Sunday specifically by coming to corporate worship together. 
which is also at the heart of our text from Luke 13. What I really appreciate were the responses that connected Sabbath to healing. You made that connection by saying that Sabbath helps you disconnect from the world and reconnect with God. And how important is that to do every week, not occasionally, sporadically, infrequently, but every single week God said, do that, disconnect from the world, disconnect from your device. I think that would be one of the Ten Commandments. Turn off your device, thus saith the Lord, and connect with, with God. Somebody else said that being with my brothers and sisters in worship helps me refocus. And I love this. One of you said, when I make time for Sabbath, Sabbath has already made time for me because the slate has been wiped clean and I get to restart my week. Isn't that beautiful? It's so beautiful. So I think about all of that and, and Sabbath and what it means and, and how it should be the center part of, of our week. And I think about the gospel lesson today, and they're, they're laid there alongside one another. Jesus is worshiping in the synagogue on Sabbath, but he does something different also. He, he starts teaching in that synagogue on Sabbath. And everything was going just fine and dandy until he saw something, someone that began tugging at his heart. He saw a person everyone else was overlooking, a woman, an unnamed woman, according to Luke. He saw a woman who entered the synagogue without any uh, pretension, entered the assembly unannounced. What I envision is that the service had probably already started, like the processional hymn was, was already over and somebody was at the lectern, you know, doing the call to worship. And there enters this woman and, and sits in the back. And the way the room would have been set up is the men, you know, all came forward and, and the women, they stayed in the back and, and entering late maybe is this hunched over woman who comes just as she is. And I think she probably just kind of slid in the back and sat on the back pew. And maybe she slid in the back and sat on the back pew because that's what she had always done. It was her, her rhythm, her habit to come to synagogue worship. Maybe she sat on, on the back pew and came in after everyone, after everyone else because everyone else was fighting for the best seat and, and she just needed to give them time because she moved at a slower pace and nobody would give her that time or that space. Or maybe because she had been so uh, bent over, hunkered, and, and she had just heard more than she had seen because her vision was not outward but downward. And maybe she had heard people say, Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. And she would have heard the stories. You know, he's the one that, that put the mud on the guy's eyes and sight was restored. He told the guy, the paralytic guy, you know, remember, get up and walk. Take your mat and walk. Maybe there's a chance for me. And so she came. She came unaccompanied on her own. In the middle of the sermon, Jesus stopped and saw her way in the back. And it's curious to me, one other thing I've thought about this week is the things that the people, the things that Jesus does notice, because scripture tells us Jesus notices lilies and his eye is always on the sparrow. 
And he notices a single sheep and a lost coin and a short man up a sycamore tree and a blind man beside the road named Bartimaeus and a lowly bent-backed woman who enters the synagogue on the Sabbath in the back, doesn't want to be a nuisance, doesn't want to be an agenda, doesn't want to be anything else. She just comes and Jesus sees her over the crowd, above the rabbis, beyond the Pharisees, over the businessmen, and beyond even the observant worshipers, all of whom were focusing on Jesus. He sees this unnamed woman who was ridden by this spirit for 18 years. I've tried to place myself in this woman's shoes this past week, and I've determined that she must have been a woman of great courage. And I've made that determination from two different angles. First, many of us, we know this about ourselves, we will do anything to avoid a crowd or to avoid being seen if we feel the least bit self-conscious about the way we look or the way that, that we are, right? And I thought back to all of the times that I didn't want to leave my room, much less go to school or, or church because of an acne outbreak, you know? Remember that? They're going to talk about me. I don't want to leave my room. Let me take a sick day today. Or I think about all of the times that uh, I didn't take my laundry to the laundry room and had to wear something to school that was, well, less than the aroma of Christ. Let's just put it that way. We will take the path of least resistance if that means avoiding the spotlight because of something that's tripping us up. The second thing that showed great courage to me about this woman is that I think she knows our collective human condition is that we don't treat people who are differently abled with the same type of integrity that they deserve. We tend to see the people most clearly who stand uprightly, and when we do see people who are differently abled, sometimes we do want to put the spotlight on them, consciously or subconsciously, and what Luke is inviting us to do, you know, Luke is always drawing the circle more widely. He's telling us to see all people. He's inviting the church, even, to see people as Jesus sees people. And so he tells us that Jesus calls this woman not property, not an agenda, not a nuisance, not an interruption, but a daughter, a child of God. And so he sees her. But the text doesn't start, stop there, does it? The momentum keeps building because it's one thing to see somebody. It's another thing to do somebody about the needs that person has. I want you to hear that very clearly. That's a, that's a missions model. It's one thing to, for the church to look out in the community and say, uh, if we don't meet this need, who will? And we've said that about a lot of different things. We've said it about mental health. We've said it about feeding initiatives, clothing initiatives, you name it. We've looked out and said, if the church doesn't say yes to this and meet this need, who will? But it's one thing to see it. It's another thing to, to do something about it, right? And so I think Jesus actually sees two things that day. A woman who appears in the middle of his teaching, and I think he also sees a spirit of shame that has accompanied that woman to worship. And this is the dilemma. This is the tension in which we find this text. It's the tension that was always around Jesus trying to stand in the middle of all of the, the chaos and, well, the tension. The suspense continues to build, and we're sit, sitting there reading, thinking, Will he heal her? Because if he heals on the Sabbath, he's breaking the law. So what will he do? He really kind of asks in his actions another question. What is more kingdom-like? Liturgical conventions 
or restoring God's children on whose backs so much weight has been placed. So he calls her. And I just wondered what that was like. Can you imagine getting up from her pew, looking down, not being able to gaze upwardly at all, not, you know, just kind of side glances, but, but there's something different about this voice? It goes back to the shepherd and sheep relationship, like maybe she knew the voice of the shepherd was calling her forward. And I just think about all the feet that probably scuttled out of the way and, and the whispering that ensued and, and maybe the, the, the additional layer of fear and, and anxiety and, and even the unknown that was accompanying her forward. Why was she being summoned? Had she been a distraction? Was it because they feared she had a spirit and spirits were... Uh, linked to sin in that day, was she being called out? She's, she's a woman. She's not supposed to come up there to where everybody else was in this patriarchal society. So what exactly was this rabbi about to say or do? Well, Jesus calls, and then Jesus reaches out his hands and lays them on her back and says something that they would have all understood from Exodus. Woman, you are being set free. It's not really you're being healed. It's being set free. And being set free means standing uprightly again, but also being restored back to one's family or back to one's community life. No longer was she a bent-back woman with this spirit of shame. We need to talk about shame for just a minute. Because there was a physical healing that day. She stood uprightly and she, she lifted her chin and she looked eye to eye with people whose voices she recognized. She looked eye to eye with Jesus and saw the face of God. But there was a greater healing that removed the shame. And I just have wondered this week as well if Luke leaves this woman unnamed because she could become or, or is or maybe was the personification for shame. In walks shame to worship. But who will see that shame? And who will offer a hand of healing? In has walked shame and guilt and fear and anxiety and grief all on many of our backs this very morning. Will we see one another? Will we help one another stand uprightly? Imagine 18 years of being stooped over so that all one sees are feet and ground. Never looking someone in the eye, it's almost like being half human. What we know about shame is that it has a way of pulling us down, pulling us lower and lower and lower to the level of earth. And you'll remember Genesis 2. It's from the earth that we were created. God breathed into the dirt that Adamah, as it's called. Life came from the ground level up and we sprouted forth and became God's people. But shame pulls us lower and it tugs at our insides until we double over, unable to look upwardly or make eye contact with the ones we love. It can be an insurmountable weight placed on one's shoulders. It can depress our vision, our hope, our very existence until we just are driven and driven further and further down. The spirit of shame, it comes from a lot of different sources. It's sometimes 
a guilt, a burden, a weight that we place on ourselves or that others have placed on us, or God forbid, sometimes their institutions, even the church, places shame on people deciding who's worthy and, and who's not. Shame presents itself as labels we stick on others and labels we stick on ourselves to divide people and to divide ourselves from people. Oh, that's, you're just a kid or you're just a teenager or single or divorced or young or old or widow or trying to hold down a job or trying to keep the marriage together or trying to get through this grief season without anyone knowing, figuring out how to cope with mental health. These these labels we stick on ourselves and others, and labels are an outward sign of an inward and unspiritual pain signaling to all that someone needs Jesus and the church. But shame does, shame does not originate from God, ever. Shame is the serpent on the ground vying for our attention, hissing around, whispering lies in our ears about God and about ourselves. I, the personification of Satan is not a devil with the horns and the pitchfork and the tail, but the gravity of shame, capital S. For it's shame that told Adam and Eve they were naked and should be embarrassed. Shame that sent King David into a depressive state. It was shame that caused Judas to flee Jerusalem, never to see the light of day. Shame tells God's people they are not worthy to be redeemed, and we're hunched over little by little for years on end, sometimes 18 or more years, until the gravitational pull of shame freezes us at the ground level so I think Luke is right. He's painting us this portrait here on this canvas. He's allowing us to insert ourselves into the story as this woman, but he's leaving enough room for us to just kind of put ourselves in, in there and ask ourselves, is it shame that is lying to us about how much we are loved by God? Yes, it is. The shame and even fear and even anxiety about the future lies to us about how worthy we are. It lies to us and seeks to rob us of our identity. It lies to us by telling us that our bodies are not fit enough or firm enough, our minds not sharp enough, our decisions not good enough, our existence not valuable enough, but then Jesus, then Jesus sees us, and then Sabbath, and Sabbath is made for us because Sabbath is the day we are to be courageous enough to come as we are, despite where we've been, regardless of who might see us, because Jesus is calling us forward. And friends, Jesus is calling us by his grace to rise up and not to be weighed down by shame any longer. I've been thinking a lot about this text this week. And I wish the story would have ended there, but like any good drama, the next utterances out of the preacher's mouth in the stole and the robe, he says to the whole crowd, you heard this in the story, he says to the whole crowd, why can't you all come between regular business hours, between eight and five to be healed? Why do you have to come on Sabbath? Why Sabbath? Because based on what you told me 2,000 years later, Sabbath is how we are healed when we sit next to one another who, 
And we understand that not anyone here has all of life figured out, but that piece by piece, as much as life has tried to, to shame us and bend us over toward the ground a little bit more through guilt, that piece by piece, even through a little bit of bread and a little dip of, of juice in the cup, piece by piece, song by song, creed by creed, liturgy by liturgy, anthem by anthem, baptism, we're being put back together and we're rising. And that's made me wonder one final thing, and that maybe the woman in this story is actually the church, the bride of Christ that has been weighed down for too long by division and subtle whispers of the deceiver, that all of these trying times are more than we can bear. We might as well just give up and give in and gaze downwardly. But that is not who we are. That is not who we were created to be. We are the church, and as much as Jesus went down in the tomb and rose, there's a daily and a weekly rising to us, God's people. We are the body of Christ who continues to rise and to stand and to sing. Why did you come here today on this Sabbath and not during regular business hours? <laughs> because this is where we hear and experience the voice of Christ saying, come, be a part of this family. Let your chains fall off. Let your shame go away. No more fear. Stand up. Rise. We were meant to stand straight together. May we commit this to the Lord as our prayer, as the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen.